Amen. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. Today we're going to be in the book of Genesis chapter 2. So the beginning of the Bible is Genesis. The beginning of Genesis is Genesis 1, then Genesis 2. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, please turn or tap your way there. If not, we're going to have those words on the screen for you. And if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, we'd love to give you one. It's nice to read from a paper Bible every now and again. Um, As we finish today our series called Grounded. Now, we name that series Grounded, not to reference, you know, being a kid and getting grounded, but to having your feet solidly planted on something. This stage is not very solid. It's wonderful, and I'm thankful for it, but it's not a very solid, like, good stage. If I step back, it creaks, and then it creaks again, and I get real anxious about, you know, myself and my weight. But the, the, the stage isn't real solid, but if you plant your feet on something solid, you can take it. You can take the push and the pull. You can take what comes at you. There's something to being what God has made us to be, and he didn't make us to be independent, but dependent on the right thing, on him. And we're finishing this series today by going all the way back to the beginning. We've kind of worked our way backwards through scripture. We talked with we started with the doxology in Romans, a praise, a study of praise in Romans, and then we jumped into Genesis, and we've kind of been working our way to the beginning of Genesis. And today we're going to look at the last bit, the bit left, the first bit, which is the story of creation. And as you read this story, we're going to see our dependence on how we are grounded in God for our hope. And we named Hope Church, Hope Church, not just because we put our hand in a basket of like Christian words and came out with Grace Church, here we are, or Faith Church, or yada yada. No, no, no. We, we intentionally picked the word hope because that word is essential. That concept is not only life-giving, it's necessary. And yet, if you try to define the word, it's a little bit like love or or some word that we use a lot and everybody feels like we know what it is, but it's difficult to define. Maybe that'd be a good exercise on Valentine's, Happy Valentine's, to try and define love. But if you try and put it on paper, it's difficult. And hope has a little bit of those same sort of difficulties in pinning down exactly what it is. We hope for something, and that means that we have like this desire, this conviction that some good thing is coming. And for the Christian, the Christian hope is that there's some good out there, but not only is it out there, it's out there and it's coming for me. The Christian hope puts all of this into God language, that God is this good, this ultimate good thing, and this good thing that is coming, and that I am somehow going to receive that good from Him. So today, I just want to think about it with you. I want to give you hope, the hope that we get from Scripture, because if you do have hope, you have something that shines. It blossoms out. It continues even in really dark times. It grabs you and pulls you forward through pain and difficulty. I'm trying to figure out the right illustration for hope all week, and the closest I got was the idea of a a World War II soldier who's down in a foxhole, and the one thing he's got is he's got that little picture of home. When things are really hard, when things are really cold, when things are really over, he can pull out that picture of home 
And what that picture, he's got a picture of a lady from back at home or he's got a picture of a, a homestead or a family like standing next to a barn or something. It's World War II, I don't know. That's what you imagine, these guys from Iowa, you know. But you're, you're out in a foxhole somewhere and we've read these books and seen these movies of World War II and they pull out, and it's so bleak, but they pull out that picture. That's why they're fighting. That's why they keep going. Death and desolation everywhere, but that, they can keep going. Maybe it's a little later in the movie and they're back in the town and there's the red light district and there's the bar. How do they not go into those things? How do they continue on the course that they're on? They look at that picture. They remember their hope. What I want to do from Genesis 2, and it may seem like it's crazy, but I want to have us understand the hope that Scripture is promising, the hope that if we see it, can pull us forward. I can endure the work week if Friday is coming. A lady can endure, a mom can endure labor if a baby is coming. The husband can endure the pregnant wife if a baby... No, just kidding. That's just a joke. That's just a silly thing. Obviously, pregnant mothers are just the most wonderful people. But can I endure the world if heaven is coming? Because the opposite of hope is what we see a lot in our world. And it feels like this trash compactor where the walls are moving in. And what was big is getting smaller all the time. And it may be slow, but it's also not stopping. And eventually, you just feel like you're going to be crushed. That hopelessness that we see in this world with suicide everywhere. And I tried to find, like, what... What's the version of that that's like a story where we can all go back to? The movie where they're in a trash compactor. And, and everything I could think of was Star Wars or Indiana Jones or something. And every time that it, you could think of it, though, you thought about the hero escaping. And I'm trying to illustrate hopelessness. I don't need the hero to escape. But, of course, the hero does escape because if the hero doesn't escape, the story is over. For so many people, though, that's what they feel like. They feel like their story is about to end, and it's just going to end. And in despair, temptation can just knock them over. In despair, why? Why keep going? Why fight? Why do anything? So we need hope. We don't just need the teasing of hope. We need to feel it. We need to get it. We need to grab it and hold it close. We need that picture that keeps us moving. And what is it? Man, I can wait well for Christmas. Why? Because Christmas reaches months and months back and grabs you and gets your excitement going and builds your anticipation and pulls you forward. What is the Christian hope? The Christian hope is, and this is something we've got to ask and kind of answer for ourselves, but it is, of course, God. The question is twofold, though, because if we're going to have that Christian hope, a hope in God, we've got to put that Christian hope on two pillars. One pillar is the question of, is he worth hoping for? Is God so good? I know that God's good. We say that all the time. But is he so good that he's the thing that's on your picture? You know, these guys in World War II or whatever, they're pulling out this picture. It's not just a picture of some nice thing. Not a picture of a car or a picture of a hamburger. Those are lovely things. 
they're good things, but, but the, capital G, the good, it's that lady, it's that family, it's that farm. Is God good enough to be the good, the thing on the picture? Can he be good? But also, will he be good to me? There's all kinds of good things out in the world. I just don't have access to them. I can only hope in the good things that are coming towards me. Those two pillars, those two questions. Can we have hope in him? So, can he make us happy? I want us to go back in Genesis 2 to climb back into the Garden of Eden and see if God really is this good that we can put our hope in. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Let's read. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in the Eden in the east, and there, was, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is our creation story. In this garden, God makes a man. And just like last week with blind Bartimaeus, where the first thing that his newly opened eyes see is the face of Christ... So with Adam, the very first thing he sees when God breathes life into him is the face of God Almighty. And oh, the sermon should end here. Because that's heaven. I don't need to argue any further. If you understand who God is, I should not need to argue any further that the face of God makes God good enough. Who he is in himself being with us, that's heaven. We got a lot of other stuff we're going to go through, but that's heaven. That he would be, really be with us. Think about for a second what could have been. He could have created however he wanted to. He had the power to, he had the creativity to, he certainly had the majesty not to be involved in our creation directly. Think about the story about Jesus and the centurion. The centurion comes up to Jesus and says, Please, Lord, my my servant is sick. And Jesus says, All right, let's go. Oh, no, the centurion replies, No, 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 Jesus. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Just say the word and he'll be healed. Because I'm a man who's under authority. And I'm over other people. I have authority over. When I say to that man, Come, he comes. When I say go, he goes. Lord, you just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus doesn't hold in his surprise. He says, whoa, Jews, look at this guy. He's not even one of us, but he gets it. Look at the great faith of this centurion. He understands what authority is, what the majesty of God is. He doesn't need to come and create us. Man, he could have done it from his highest heavenly throne. He could have sent intermediaries. He could have gotten a letter from him. But Adam wakes up with God having just actively created, built him from the dust, and then blown into him the breath of life. God gives us himself. And Adam, on waking up, hears from God, look, 
look, I'm God. You're my creature. Now look at this place I put you in. Adam could have just stared at God. But God is immediately showing him all these really good things that he's done. He's not just given him life. He's put him into this perfect setting with this perfect temperature, these perfect smells, this perfect health, the strength, the vitality, the no danger to really get out and enjoy something beautiful. My wife and I, we've got on uh, YouTube, it just started suggesting for us this couple named Kara and Nate. Kara with a C. And if you look, they've got this travel channel, and we actually know them. They're from our hometown, and they travel all over the world, and millions of people watch their videos where they, they go to some exotic place, and they enjoy some crazy experience, a $10,000 a night hotel or whatever. And because they've got people watching their videos, they're able to just go for free and yada, yada, or, or they'll go out to this middle-of-nowhere place, and they've got to fly, and you can't get there directly, so you've got to go down to Australia and then come back up to Singapore and yada, yada, yada. And my daughters are wide-eyed the whole time at these amazing experiences and food and things these people are seeing. And the whole time I'm thinking, man, what a hassle. Can you imagine trying to get through security there? Well, what do they do with your passport there? And then how do you get a taxi cab there? And what if you don't? What if you think you're in a taxi cab and they just drive you off and steal your organs? And like all I can think about is danger and difficulty and hassle. And all my kids see is the food and the colors and the experiences. Well, bless them. What we have with Adam in Eden is a better upside, all the upside and none of the downside. Think about the fact that as death approaches, everything seems to dull down, doesn't it? My perception, I can't see, I can't hear, I can't taste, I can't feel. Jesus, as he's healing people, he's healing all the time their perception organs. He's given blind people sight. He's given deaf people hearing. He's given mute people speaking. He's, he's bringing back the skin of the leper. He's giving them perception again. And it's not just because he's a nice guy. He's also undoing the curse. That's what happens as we grow old. That's what happens under the presence of sin. Yeah, it happens physically, but it's happening spiritually. It says in the scriptures that as we worship idols, we become like them. These idols of stone, and we become like stone. We, we lose our ability to see and our ability to feel. We harden, but we also deaden. Okay, go the other way now. Unspool that and then rewind it. Look at Adam. Adam, whose perfect perception, his perfect sight and smell and hear, just exactly as God made him to enjoy, and then that apparatus is put into this garden wherein are all the trees who are, are, are good, are pleasing to the taste or touch or smell. The most beautiful plants, the most pleasing tastes and scents. And it's an, it's an order to go with the beauty. There's unformed outside of the garden, but in the garden, God has planted it specifically. If you ever walk through a true garden, you see that not only am I seeing things that are beautiful, but I'm seeing the way in which those things have been organized and presented. There's a beauty to it that not only affects your soul and your heart, but it gets up into your mind and it startles you with the fact that the way these things are coming together is beautiful. Yes, you can be startled by a blossom, but you can also be startled by the, the way that a wood joint comes together. 45 and 45 making 90 in the perfect sort of settled order of the world. And he gets to enjoy this. He gets to see this. God giving him himself and the beauty and the joy of all of this. And before Adam's even understanding what's going on, 
Next thing, God starts to bring out animals. There's these passages about the rivers and the warning passages from last week. And then in verse 18, God says, Not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. We're going to have a whole series on this, so I can't dig, dig, dig. But verse 19, Now, out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him, dot, dot, dot. Now, the animals are coming. And can you imagine the wild joy of Adam in watching God bring out these animals? Adam has seen beauty. He's seen order. He started to taste and to smell the loveliness of God in his creation. And while the trees might have swayed in a breeze, they were unmoving and they were quiet. And then God brings out monkeys. And he brings out the first, the original, the most perfect tiger. And out comes lumbering this gigantic elephant. And and, and Adam is getting to see and know and enjoy and kick his feet like a baby with the joy of God's creativity. No danger, it's just joy and it's wild. Imagine, you've gone to a zoo, you've gone to an aquarium. Have you ever gone and just allowed the waddling, crawling, stomping variety and joy, the comic and beautiful proportions of animals just overwhelm you with joy? That God in his creativity has made these things. Man, we're often taught, or at least it's sort of assumed that we believe that there's sort of a randomness to them. A lot of the animals you see out there are just sort of this collection of genetic mutation. Ah. But what that ends up doing is it steals something, something of the joy of seeing this as a gift from God to you. Adam, in that moment, perfectly understood that this bird, that this crocodile, perfect crocodile, original crocodile, he probably had all his teeth straight, this original crocodile, and he comes walking out, and God shows Adam, like, oh, and Adam's like, crocodile, and okay, it's now a crocodile, we've named it, thank you, Adam, this crocodile that comes walking out, and God has made this, this beauty, this creativity, this joy. We miss it all the time because in our heads we just decide that these things are normal. They're natural, whatever that word means. And so we somehow lose the miracle of them. Now, whenever I want to re-experience just the joy of things that are common, even though they are not, not miraculous, I go to this guy Chesterton. There's a great quote from him. He's talking about this sort of idea. He said, it's one thing if you think about talking to a gorgon or a griffin from Greek mythology, these creatures that do not exist. It's another thing to discover that the rhinoceros does exist and then take pleasure in the fact that he looks as if he didn't. And Chesterton is absolutely right. Just take a second to scrape off the, all of the film on your eyes. You can just see things as they are, the miracle that they are, that grass is green or the sky is blue perfect design gifts. Just, uh, Lewis, C.S. Lewis called the animals our jesters, our servants, and our playfellows. And that's exactly what they were for Adam. That's what they could be. 
what God designed them to be. And yet a still greater pleasure, of course, is ahead. Then, verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock, birds of the heavens, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Do you see again? The creation story is getting very specific. God is getting very involved. He's shaping out of the dust Adam and then breathing into it. And then with this, he's put Adam to sleep and he's removing a piece of Adam. And then he's shaping and he's perfectly creating. And he uh, closed up its place with flesh, verse 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And brought her to the man. Then the man said, This, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she's taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they'll become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Happy Valentine's. Look at that. Joy, excitement, but just this little bit of disappointment because he sees all these animals, but then Adam goes to sleep and he wakes up. He must think he's still dreaming because out comes the woman. Out comes the thing that is him, but not him. The same as him, but opposite of him. Equal in creation that he's just like her in glory, but absolutely the opposite of her in all of these other ways. Adam, who stood before the animals and he towered in a lonely splendor because he is and they aren't all of these things, but now the woman. Imagine the moment, not just so you imagine it, but imagine the moment because in this moment, all the wild promises of sexual perversion fall flat. Everything our culture says or seems to think about homosexuality or the idea of changing genders, changing teams, they all fall flat in this moment of God-orchestrated perfection where Adam sees Eve, where Eve is seen by Adam. He bursts into song. God shows them love. Again, if we had time, he embraces for them the idea of the Trinity. It's all laid out, this beauty, this perfection, this excitement, this joy, this wild, peaceful, exciting, crazy joy. And he's just rolling this stuff out for Adam, one after another after another. And all of it's still in its beginning. We don't really even get to see what else God had planned because not long after that, Adam and Eve fall. So can God be, can he be something that we put as our one thing, our picture that everything else is for? Yeah, he's good enough. He delights to please us. Why? It's just his glory. That's what he does. But will he? It says that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. And for us, that's wild because we have those categories. For Adam, it was obvious. He didn't have the idea of clothes or of shame. But we do. We have something to be ashamed of. We have something that needs to be covered. 
We ask God will be that good for us. And what we're asking is, uh, can we climb back into the garden? But of course we can't. Adam and Eve are taken out of the garden and an angel with a fiery sword is put in front of the garden. And then, of course, the flood and yada, yada. But we can't climb back in. We want to be with him. We've got to have a different way. We can't get back to him. God gave us all of these gifts and we slapped that gift horse in the mouth. So we can't go back in, but he can come after us. And that's exactly what he does with Christ. In Jesus, we have God coming to the rescue, coming to be in the flesh of Adam in order to be what Adam should have been. He brings sight to the blind. He brings all of this freedom and healing from the serpent's oppression and possession. And then he dies outside the camp. Man, if I could trace it through all of Scripture, I would. But taken out of the garden taken out of the city. When you had Moses building the tabernacle and creating this this Israel, this nation, you had these sort of circles and the place where things were pure and holy was where God was. And then there was the place outside. You get to Jerusalem when the time of Christ is there. you You have the temple, this second temple that they built. And in this temple is God in his presence. And yet Jesus is crucified outside the camp, out in Gehenna, out where the wickedness and the darkness is. He's not crucified in the city. He's got to carry his cross. Simon of Cyrene's got to carry Christ's cross outside of the city and there to be crucified, to go outside of life itself. Will he? Can we have hope that that good of him will come to us? Well, that's where the, this, this gospel blossoms into this wild explosion of joy and excitement. Because the answer is, yes! Yes, that's what he came to do. He came to make this way possible for us. Can he be our good? Absolutely. Will he? Absolutely. What's my authority? Jesus' words. He says, John 14, he's got his boys together. It's the last time he's going to talk to him. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it wasn't so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also prepared a place. What does that feel like? That's heaven. It's the garden all over again. It's God building this perfect spot where he's going to put his people to be in his presence forever. That's our hope. That good future is going to grab you by the belly and pull you forward through your difficulty and through your temptation. Do you see it? You're somebody that's not a Christian and you're examining Christianity. Fantastic. Examine this. This hope, this is the gospel. You're somebody who's been in Christianity for a while. Fantastic. How's it going? How are you doing with temptation? How you, how's your evangelism look? Is there boldness? Or do you live your life trying to protect the small amount of good you feel like you've already gotten? 
hope grabs you and pulls you forward because you see that picture, that thing that is not yet but will be. Oh, brothers and sisters, do you have this hope? Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, we don't deserve anything from you. We don't deserve your grace. We don't even deserve creation, Lord, that you would come and form us from the dust, you and your high and your holiness. But the Psalms say, Lord, that your love is steadfast, that you want us to take refuge in the shadow of your wings. You want us to feast on the abundance of your house. You want us to drink from the river of your delights, that with you is the fountain of life. Lord, that in your light we see light. Will you let us see the light of your hope and have that light buoy us, carry us, drag us through everything we've got coming until you bring us home. We love you, sir. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.